This is an ABC podcast. Hi, I'm Tom Switzer and this is Between the Lines, the summer series. Now, coming up later in this episode, how Osama bin Laden's reach and power has been widely overestimated in the post-9-11 years. Nellie LaHood reviews and analyses the infamous terrorists' personal papers. But first, to a sense of balance and a lengthy conversation I had back in September with the former Prime Minister, John Howard. Well, Australian Prime Ministers can be defined into two categories. There are those who enter politics as just pliant, vacillating politicians with no coherent set of principles. Now, this type of Prime Minister never seems to be in control of events, but always their victim. As a result, they leave little of worth as a legacy. Now, most Prime Ministers fit into this rather undistinguished group. Then there's a second category, truly exceptional individuals with the courage and the will to shape history. They enter politics with a firm set of beliefs and thereafter stick pretty closely to them. Now, this type is extremely rare. Obviously, the great Labor leader, Bob Hawke, comes to mind, as does our longest-serving Prime Minister, Sir Robert Menzies. My first guest is another example, John Howard, Prime Minister from March 96 to November 2007. Now, whatever one thought of Howard's politics and philosophy of government, and our guest certainly had no shortage of detractors during his 33-year public life, I think it's fair to say that uh, it's widely believed, at least, that he made the political weather, as they say in Britain. During his 12 years in power, Howard combined strong convictions about a wide range of public policy issues with the kind of prudence that is a subject of his new book. It's called A Sense of Balance. It's published by HarperCollins. John Howard, welcome to Between the Lines. Very good to be here, Tom. Now, summarise your thesis. Well, my thesis is that one of the really outstanding features of Australia is that in so many areas, we have achieved a sense of balance. <clears throat> We're not too crazily one side or the other of arguments. And this really goes back to the time of British settlement. One of the clever things this country did was to choose the good bits of our British heritage. That's the rule of law, freedom of the press, parliamentary democracy. In many respects, not totally, our sense of humour, some <laughs> some sporting passions, uh, although there's a big swathe of Australia, namely the four southern states, as I call them, <laughs> that uh, invented their own game. And good luck to them. It's a great game and it has a sort of a universal hold on their affections. But what we did, having chosen the good things, was say, we're not going to have the bad bits. The bad bits were class distinctions, any aristocracy. And of course, um, we cleverly chose, um, because of our heavy Celtic origins, we cleverly chose the scepticism that is so redolent uh, of the Celtic disposition. So we got a good sense of balance from uh, our British inheritance and uh, I think that was, and, and we've demonstrated that balance in so many areas as I describe in the book, education, health and the like. Yeah, and this sense of balance <laughs> has existed despite the various different governments over the last yeah, uh, well, 120 years. We, we haven't veered too far mm. to the left or the right, despite what some commentators say. I don't, of course, include 
you in that, Tom, but uh, <laughs> uh, and other distinguished commentators on the ABC and otherwise, but we haven't veered too far. That thesis of yours, I think it helps explain why we've had 30 years of prosperity and relative peace, notwithstanding the war on terror. But is your optimism about this country, is it unfounded during, let's be frank, increasingly pessimistic times? Yes, it is. I think it's needed. That sense of balance is needed even more Mm. during difficult times. It's not a time to run away from balance. When you've got challenges, you need balance because you need cooperation. And if the extremist side of an argument takes hold, you don't get cooperation. We all know that during wartime, and we're not in wartime, nothing like it, and God forbid we ever should be in it again, but during times of real national emergency, you want cooperation. Well, let's start with the economy. Real wages are falling. Inflation is at its highest level in decades. Uh, Productivity growth never really recovered after the financial crisis in 08, 09. Government spending as a percentage of GDP is rising, even after a decade of uh, coalition rule. That's a pretty grim economic outlook, isn't it? Yes, it is, but we have low unemployment. And we seem to forget that. Mm. Uh, 3.4%. Well, it's amazing. Mm. 50 years I mean, I remember when I was Prime Minister, the British Prime Minister of the time was Tony Blair, who was a Labor Prime Minister, and he had a wonderful statement. He said, fairness in the workplace starts with the chance of a job. So if you apply that Labor, British Labor, albeit, uh, definition to our current economic circumstances, then we have a very fair workplace. Yet all I hear, understandably, is talk about the need to get real wages growing again. Uh, Most employers I know want a happy workforce and they know a happy workforce is a workforce that's well paid okay, and has a what about job. inflation? Let's talk about inflation because surely the COVID fiscal response, which you supported, you gave strong support to Josh Frydenberg when he presided over those massive stimulus packages, they were bipartisan. You've got the colossal rise in borrowing, the additional money pumped into the economy to fight the virus, and of course you've had the COVID-inspired supply shocks. Rising inflation is leading to rising interest rates. Talk about unintended consequences. Well, I think one of the mistakes that was made was that interest rates were cut too far for too long. Uh, There was no petrol left in the tank. I think those last two reductions on the way down to Mm. zero that Mm. were undertaken by the Reserve Bank about four or five years ago were mistaken. And if we hadn't gone down as far, then we wouldn't be feeling some apprehension about the need to go up at a fairly rapid rate. But just look at the perspective. Interest rates are still at historically low levels. I thought it was possible to say until a couple of months ago, and it's still possible now to say this, that there's not a person alive who's seen lower interest rates than we have at the moment. Yes, that's true, but there's always a lag, uh, as you well, know. Well, of course there's a lag, but that... Well, and, there's and, a lot and, of younger people who've bought into the housing market. I, I understand, f- and everything is relative, mm. and you've, you've got to understand the context. If you borrowed at virtually zero, and it's zero plus... A half a percent, well, that's a, a, a lot more expensive than you thought. During your 12-year tenure, you and Peter Costello, your government, balanced the budget, you eliminated public debt. Where are the politicians in Canberra today criticising the magic money tree? This is the idea that budgets never need to be balanced or that money can be borrowed indefinitely to finance unlimited spending. Where are those politicians calling for, for real restraint? 
Tom, I think that is a very valid point, and I would hope in the months ahead the debate sees those calls emerge. I, I, I think it's needed. Now, we have to look at the perspective. Again, we had to go into debt because the government put the economy into recession. It was the first recession I've, I've seen, or like close to recession, that the government had caused. Mm. Normally, <laughs> recessions occur That's right. despite the wishes of the yes. government. But we put the country, when I say we, I mean the government, yeah. Uh, put the economy into recession. Exceptional in, circumstances. In, 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 and, and it therefore had to bail it out. And I agreed with the rescue package. And so did the Labor Party in opposition. They actually wanted to go further. Yes, but has a Canberra class become complacent about uh, well, these Well, I issues? think there's a danger of that. And I think one of the both obligations and opportunities uh, of the opposition, the new opposition, yes. and it's still early days. And yes. the first few months of a new government, particularly after nine years on the other side, uh, you're banging your head against the brick wall saying too much. But after a while, I hope to see emerging from the opposition. Okay, but back to this 30-year prosperity. We yes. had three decades virtually without a recession until COVID. Whatever your differences, you and Bob Hawke and Paul Keating, your government supported market-oriented growth reform agendas uh, to improve the incentives to work, lift productivity, boost competitiveness. Where are those in politics today that show the slightest zeal of prosecuting an economic reform agenda? They are hard to find. I, I agree with that. And I had the view that one of the reasons that the coalition lost the May election was that it didn't have a long-term economic plan. I suppose the point I'm making is that there seems to be, particularly among young people, that the good times can can just keep rolling. But, you, I mean, the point that you made in office and Hawke and Keating was that you need to put in place reforms to keep productivity up. It just doesn't happen. No, no. We, we have had a productivity drought mm. over the last five to ten years. Now, some of that is um, because of exceptional circumstances. Some of it is a, is a lack of policy zeal. Some of it is a belief that it will just happen without effort. Now, it never happens without effort. You've got to keep going. It's a never-ending foot race, as I used to say. And if you stop, uh, your competitors will surge past you. I'm Tom Switzer, and this is Between the Lines. My guest is John Howard, our nation's second longest serving Prime Minister. Well, let's talk about identity politics just generally. I mean, I think it's fair to say this is a widespread view that identity politics is more self-evident in the United States and Britain than it is here. But what about universities just generally? I mean, they've been at the forefront of recent years of restricting freedom of speech. And as I say, this is particularly noticeable in North America and Europe. Anyone with counter-orthodox views about a wide variety of issues transgender issues to even aspects of capitalism, they're liable to suffer the uh, the prospect of de-platforming, which, as you know, is an ugly word. But let's talk about the University of Sydney, your alma mater. They argued that the subject of Western civilization was inherently racist, and that's why the proposal of the Ramsey Centre for Western Civilization, uh, of which you chair, this was just a proposal to start a course of, of, of studying Western civilization in collaboration with the university, and it failed. What does that tell you well, about to, the intellectual to be, climate? To be fair to the university, and I have no reason to sort of use that expression on this issue, <laughs> except it's relevant, uh, they would argue that that wasn't the reason those negotiations failed. But it is clear. Well. It was clear to me at the time. It remains clear to me that there was strong opposition uh, to... Um, 
any partnership with Ramsey on the grounds that it was some kind of white supremacist superiority, which of course it wasn't. I think what you've got to do in those situations, Tom, is you've got to call them out. Mm. And I would like to see more uh, occasions when political figures, whether they're Liberal, Labor, whatever, are standing up and denouncing. See, there's too much timidity with these things. People feel that if they put their hand up and say, hey, hang on, this is, this is a bit rich. We're not racist. We just happen to be proud of the civilization that gave us in part the prosperity we have. People have got to be courageous enough to say that and not feel that they'll get dumped on from a great height. And, and page I think one of your book, timid. Page one of your book, it's not white triumphalism to celebrate the Australian achievement. Yes, well, I think uh, uh, I find the expression the Australian achievement, which incidentally um, was the description that Malcolm Fraser wanted to give to the 200-year celebration of British settlement. Uh, 1988. I, I, think, yeah. I think in 1988, I think it's a wonderful encapsulation. It's an achievement. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not triumphalism, it's not racism, it's not extreme, it's just a fair description of an achievement. What about the voice, the voice to Parliament? Well, I'm in favour of something in being put in the Constitution that recognises... Well, you, you helped trigger the debate, oh, didn't I you, did. in 2007? Well, yes, I did. I, I, I did help trigger the debate by saying just before I was thrown out of office in <laughs> 2007 mm. that I thought it would be a good idea to recognise in the Constitution, amongst other things, the undeniable truth that the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were here first. Now, something like that would draw, I believe, overwhelming support because people know it's true. Mm. Uh, Now, if that is just seen as empty symbolism, well, uh, so be it. But I, I do say to people who support the voice, I say two things. Firstly, Australians are very wary about changing their Constitution because they felt it's, they feel it's contributed uh, to our, um, our security. They really do. And the second thing I'd say is that please don't label anybody who disagrees with the voice as being insensitive to Aboriginal people because they're not. Let's turn to public discourse just generally. Many commentators, such as the esteemed journalist Paul Kelly, they lament that politics, mainly because of Twitter and social media, it's become even more polarising and toxic today. If the Kellys of the world are right, where's the objectivity, the perspective, the honesty on which you place heavy emphasis in your book? Where are those fine qualities in today's attempts to deal with major policy challenges? Tom, we could always have a lot more of that objectivity and balance uh, of which you speak, but I'm not quite as um, pessimistic as the description you ascribe uh, to Paul Kelly. Mind you, you never had a deal with Twitter. Well, I'd never had a deal with Twitter, but there were I had to deal with you know people who likened me to Adolf Hitler and mm, things true. like and, that. And, uh, well, I won't mention it, but yeah, Mungo McCallum, all that. Yeah. Yeah, all of that, all of mm. that, yeah. Uh, that's been there for a long time, and some of the things that were said from the non-Labor side of politics about Gough Whitlam. Yes. Uh, but, the, but the pace has changed dramatically as a result of well, social media, the media cycle. the pace of life and the place of communication has changed. But it's hard to put in place sound public policy, trying to educate the public. It's not... You've got it, all this riffraff going on on social media. Yeah, uh, That's the it, point it, Kelly's that, making. That is more... It makes it more difficult, but it, it shouldn't daunt people because unless you have a determination to argue for good policy, then um, uh, the show will grind to a halt.
Climate change, Western leaders are accelerating efforts to reach net zero emissions within three decades. Now, you were denounced as PM for being in denial about the climate threat. Your thoughts on the energy transition? Well, I am still very much an agnostic about the fundamental proposition. Uh, I am concerned that we are putting too much faith in a rapid embrace of renewables and that in the process we are too rapidly phasing out coal and gas and fossil fuels and that we, uh, we could um, uh, hit uh, a big pothole, if I can borrow um, a, a metaphor, I think there's a real danger of that. And I do think that if you're going to have a proper comprehensive debate on our energy future, you must put nuclear power well, on the you, table. Well, do you regret your stance on the prohibition on nuclear energy as PM? No, because that was for a reason. That was a, I had to do it then in order to get the support of the Greens and Democrats to renew uh, the nuclear medicine facility Lucas at Lucas Heights. Heights because, yeah. incredibly enough, the Labor Party, which then included the current Prime Minister, and let me repeat that, then included the current Prime Minister, opposed our legislation to renew that mandate. And, and that would have been disastrous. It would have had implications for the health and lives of many people. Sticking with climate change, I mean, Britain and Europe, this is well known, they're set for a, a serious energy crisis this northern winter. Just look at Britain. Energy bills have soared 80%. It'll wipe out uh, almost three quarters of state pension. Uh, clearly, lives will be put at risk. And of course, uh, there's the uh, the English pubs, many of them face extinction because of high energy bills. Uh, where are the voices of reason in Britain on this subject? Because this seems to be a widespread bipartisan policy to move to renewable energy dramatically in a short period of time. Well, I don't claim to be uh, an expert on British politics. Oh, come was, on. You're uh, one of the, uh, the leading uh, authorities in this country on uh, Britain. Although I follow it very clearly. Where do, it is, I think the Conservative Party under successive leaders has gone too far too rapidly in embracing the uh, modern theology of climate change. I think that's one of the reasons. And the Labor Party in Britain is, uh, I suppose, um, stuck with the position that it's taken. And I think there's a warning in what's happening in Britain uh, t for Australia. Now, we're not in that position, and I'm not going to exaggerate mm. the situation to pretend we are, but it is a warning of what can happen if you move too rapidly in an ideological zeal to reach a goal more quickly than your critics think you can. Things are very dire in Britain right now. Uh, well, this, this is, this they, is they, they're Heath. not looking good. No, but, no, this uh, is Alistair Heath. That, He's a prominent that, Telegraph columnist. He says that liberalism, conservatism, capitalism, all could easily be swept away when the next really big crisis hits us. You supported Brexit. Why do you think post-Brexit Britain is in such a bad way? Well, I think he is a little extreme in his criticism. Well, he's a columnist, but there is, yeah, a, yeah, there yeah, is yeah, a lot yeah, of angst in Britain. But does that mean to say columnists are excused from making extreme statements? No, they're not. They're in, engaged in the public discourse and they have a responsibility uh, to base their uh, claims and predictions on fact and not on alarmism. Oh, but the reality is that there is a lot Look, of angst in Britain. The reality is that Britain is facing a very expensive energy, so is most of Europe. It's due in part to the crisis caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but it's also due overwhelmingly uh, to the needless haste with which uh, the countries of Europe have embraced the energy transition 
to uh, at the expense of too rapidly phasing out um, fossil fuel generation. And the best proof of that is the, the way in which countries like Britain and Germany mm. have been reversing decisions they've made. They're trying to reopen nuclear power plants. Even They're trying the, to keep coal plants Even going. the German Greens are supporting uh, coal. Even the German... I mean, mm. this is an extraordinary. I can remember way back in the... Just after I became Prime Minister, which was in the middle 90s, talking to Tony Blair, and when Tony Blair was saying, oh, you know, we're doing this, we're doing that, and it's all looking terrific, and we're getting all these benefits from closing coal mines, uneconomic coal mines, which, incidentally, the closures were opposed by uh, Tony Blair's Labor Party, but I'll just, I'll just put that to one side. <laughs> yes. So I do think that um, Europe is a look into the future as to what might fall Australia's way if we are not careful. John Howard is author of A Sense of Balance. It's published by HarperCollins. His other books include The Menzies Era and his best-selling autobiography, Lazarus Rising. Let's turn to foreign policy now, this strategic and economic competition between China and the US. It is likely to be the defining feature of international relations in coming decades. It's mainly going to take place in our neighbourhood. Now, when you're in power, it was hard to imagine great power rivalry ever returning to our region but that world has gone away mainly because of what you call China's aggressive international posture. With the benefit of hindsight, do you have any regrets about helping fuel China's growth and power? Have we been feeding the beast, as John Mearsheimer puts it? Well, no. I think one of the great things that we have done as a nation is to help China's economic growth because China's economic growth has helped liberate millions of people from poverty. And if we care about humanity and we care about fairness around the world, we'll applaud the fact that the number of people liberated from poverty over the last 30 years has been the greatest since the Industrial Revolution. And that's been due to the middle classing of China and to a lesser extent India and Australian fossil fuels have played a major part. So really, I mean, people who care about humanity should dip their lids yes, but, to but, the but, contribution but, that, that Australian fossil fuels have made to China's yes, growth. Yes, fair points, but China is converting its economic assets into military assets. I, you I, advocate, I, quote, a self-respecting pragmatism to guide our approach to China. Let me put this to you. How does that apply to a regime that demands our elected government conform to its expectations about how we conduct affairs. I'm thinking about the so-called 14 demands, yeah, for example. 14 points, 14 demands made by a former Chinese ambassador. We just ignore them. Okay, how do we embrace self-respecting pragmatism well, towards... We, oh, well, hang uh, on, but this, this is a regime that posted a digitally altered image of an Australian soldier about to slit the throat of an Afghan child. Well, we criticise that, but we also understand, Tom that China is our greatest export destination. We say no when the Chinese make unreasonable demands. We call out their persecution of the Uyghurs, Muslim Uyghurs. We remind everybody that China is a, a dictatorial communist state, but we also remember that 1.4 million Australians are of mm -hmm. Chinese heritage, that Chinese is the most widely spoken foreign language in this country, and we recognise uh, that there is a fundamental goodwill 
between uh, the people of China and the people of Australia. So that's um, self-respecting pragmatism. Okay, that's China. But what about America? Is it still a reliable great power? Oh, I think America is a reliable great power. And the other observation I'd make is that unlike many people, I do not accept the inevitability of China passing America as the dominant economic power in the world. I think China has got an enormous population problem. Uh, China's fertility rate is abysmal compared with America's. China's um, demography will be its undoing and it's a country that will grow old before it grows rich. And uh, I think this idea that America will inevitably fall behind China uh, is misplaced and we should never allow ourselves to be mesmerised by China's growth. Okay, one can agree with you on all that and still look at America and be horrified by what we're seeing. This is a country that is frighteningly polarised, it's deeply divided, public confidence in virtually every major US institution, religion, the courts, the media, the military industrial complex, uh, that's collapsed. Then there's a standard of political leadership in Washington. I mean, you say in your book, President Biden displays regular evidence of the beginnings of cognitive decline. And then, of course, there's the spectre of Donald Trump. And yet you're confident about American global leadership. No, I I don't feel confident about the alternatives possibly on offer. I think if you're looking for inspiration from the United States, you would look to the way the Americans uh, operate their economy. We can learn a lot. The American economy is still remarkably resilient. Uh, It's capable of producing technological change at a far greater and deeper rate uh, than any other country. And uh, I think we make a mistake when we try and uh, mimic what the Americans do with our political institutions. And we're seeing an example of that with the Prime Minister's decision to have an inquiry into Scott Morrison's uh, appointment of himself. I mean, what What's what's that possibly got to do with the future of this country? The point I'm making, Tom, is that this is what happens in America. Mm. Uh, uh, The judicial process has been greatly politicised in America. Uh, We should avoid that. We've never done that in the past and we shouldn't do it in the future. Your scathing of Trump, you say in your book you were dumbfounded that the Republicans pre-selected him as their presidential candidate in 2016. But let me put this to you. Unlike his establishment predecessors, John McCain and George W. Bush, whom you knew and admired, Trump did resonate with a lot of forgotten people who are fed up with America's elites. The backlash against globalisation, the endless failed wars in the Middle East, lax border controls, radical socio-cultural change. I mean, isn't Trump just a symptom of America's problems? Tom, the other thing I said in my book was that on balance, and of course it wasn't possible because uh, I'm not and never will be an American citizen, uh, I'd have voted for Trump ahead of Biden in 2020, but it's been Trump's behaviour since he he lost the election that has really finished him in my mind. And that January 6th riot. Look, Mm. nobody likes losing. I didn't like losing um, in March of 2007. I'm quite sure Paul Keating didn't like losing to me in March of 96. And I'm quite sure Scott Morrison didn't like losing uh, to Anthony Albanese, but it's part of the process. Yes. And a seamless, uh, at least on the surface, gracious transfer of power is part of the democratic process and Trump 
failed to leave the field after he'd been given out twice by the, <laughs> not only by the years of cricketing example, would be completely lost on him. Yes, uh, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> My guest is John Howard. Now, finally, the Liberal Party in the Teals, these are safe metropolitan blue ribbon Liberal seats, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth. These are the crown jewels of the Liberal Party. All these seats are now Teals. The question here is... No, two of them are green. Well, sorry, you're right. Te- 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 very good. Teals or green. <laughs> you haven't lost it, have you? <laughs> but they've lost, the Liberals have lost these seats. How does a Conservative like Peter Dutton win back these socially progressive electorates? Well, it's wrong to define Peter Dutton as a Conservative, and he said that himself. He said, uh, I'm... Not a, I'm not a conservative, I'm not a moderate, I'm a liberal. Uh, I was, am. Mm. Uh, I'm a liberal who's got... But he's seen as a conservative. How does well, he win them back? Well, I, there's more to... Perception counts in well, politics. Yes, I know, but you're adopting the language of, of you know, salami slicing uh, uh, the Liberal Party of Australia. I think what we have to do is remember we are a broad church, as an expression I've used before, and and way you attract them back to church is to emphasise that distillation of conservative and smaller liberal values that means that we defend institutions that work, we attack the faddish undermining of traditional values, but we also embrace economic reform. I mean, we've got to face the need yes. for further taxation and industrial well, relations reform. Following on from this, and this is, this is actually a, a global Western issue, is Western politics still characterised by that old left-right ideological divide between capital and labour, or is it defined increasingly around identity issues, many of which are shaped by culture well, and values? Well, uh, uh, unfortunately, the cultural definitions have intruded much too far. I mean, for example, this talk of quotas, I, I see uh, the diversity of candidates for the leadership of the British Conservative Party, and it's very hard to find an Anglo-Celtic yeah. white male. There's no quotas there. Uh, no quotas there. They've got there. the list, though, the Tory list. Yeah, but but that's such an internal... Mm. Part. There's no quotas. And, 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 and the truth is that uh, you don't need quotas, and I think quotas are insulting, particularly quotas for female candidates, are insulting to many women I know in the Liberal Party, many able women, we're absolutely insulted by quotas. I don't need artificial help to get somewhere. I mean, Margaret Thatcher didn't need any artificial help. I just raised this broader issue about a potential political realignment in Western countries, including Australia, because Boris Johnson and Brexit, they showed in Britain, Trump showed in the US, and even Morrison here in 2019, that centre-right parties, and you did this during your tenure, the so-called Howard Battlers, centre-right parties winning over many working-class constituencies on cultural issues. I suppose the question I'm asking here is, can Liberals keep those socially conservative blue-collar workers on side while at the same time they still appeal to more progressive voters in those erstwhile safe metropolitan seats? Well, there's a couple of flaws in that analysis. Um, The so-called progressive voters in those wealthy seats are not necessarily progressive in the sense in which you use those words. We lost people in those teal seats, seats like Wentworth and North Sydney, both of which I know well. Mm. We lost those seats because people were cranky with the incumbent Liberal government, but because of their past attitudes, couldn't bring themselves to vote Labor. So they voted for the teals. And, and that's the explanation more than anything, 
as to why that movement occurred. The Teals were a comfortable alternative and they'll remain a comfortable alternative whilst ever the Liberal Party falls short in providing things that people normally expect from the Liberal Party, that's common sense on traditional values, but a willingness to change and embrace even radical new attitudes on economic policy. John Howard, great to have you back on Between the Lines. Thanks, Tom. That was John Howard, Prime Minister of Australia from early 1996 to late 2007. That's him talking about a sense of balance. As published by HarperCollins, I spoke with him in September of 2022. Now, last year, I had a couple of months away from Between the Lines, and I'd like to once again thank my colleague Kylie Morris for filling in while I was on leave. So as part of our summer series, I'd like to revisit a conversation Kylie had in May 2022 with Nellie LaHood. She's author of The Bin Laden Papers. An important new book has just been published and it offers fresh and revealing insights into Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda. The release of his personal papers is a treasure trove for analysts and it adds layers to what we thought we knew about the world's most famous terrorist. Nelly LaHood is the author of the Bin Laden Papers, How the Abbottabad Raid Revealed the Truth About Al-Qaeda, Its Leader and His Family. It's published by Yale University Press. Uh, Dr LaHood is a senior fellow in New America's International Security Program. Her research has focused really on the evolution and ideology of Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State. Among her many qualifications and appointments, critically, she has a PhD from the Research School of Social Sciences at the Australian National University. Nellie, thanks so much for joining us on Between the Lines. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be on your program, Kylie. Now, Osama bin Laden's personal papers, how did they end up in American hands? Well, the papers were recovered during the raid that killed bin Laden in May 2011. What we have really is, a, is a, an extensive collection. What happened is that they've been declassifying these papers since 2012. But in November 2017, the CIA declassified thousands of files, a massive volume, and these consisted of text, audio and video files. And with the help of two research assistants, we systematically went through all the text files. There are nearly 97,000 files. Most of them turned out to be newspaper articles and other materials that are publicly available. But within the text file, the text files, we also found Al-Qaeda's internal communications, nearly 6,000 Arabic pages. These were Al-Qaeda's closely guarded secrets. They were never meant for public consumption. There is nothing more unique to study the history of Al-Qaeda post 9-11 as, as it was being made by bin Laden and those in his closest orbit. There's nothing like it. It is interesting, isn't it, because Osama bin Laden was, you know, famously obsessed by secrecy and his own security. I mean, he didn't use email, the internet, mobile phones. He was incredibly cautious. Yet by what you're describing there was a trove, a collection of key communications kept, at least electronically, 
so much of his personal correspondence and papers. What was he thinking? How do you explain the, the tension between those two things? You're right. What was he thinking? It, it, it's actually astonishing that we have these papers because he was supposed to have destroyed them all. And we know this because about a month before the raid, his top associate in North Waziristan, Atia, sent him a 12-page letter. And at the end of that letter, there was a PS, something to the effect that I destroyed all the SIM cards on which we've been saving our correspondence as we do periodically. And this is a gentle reminder that you should do the same on your end. Now, having said that, I'd like to know whether these papers were recovered, that these papers were recovered from deleted files, meaning did bin Laden delete his files and the intelligence agencies had the know-how to recover them, or he simply couldn't let go of these materials. So I don't know if I'll ever find out. Are you aware of how um, comprehensive the collection is in the sense that do you think there are gaps? Are there years missing? Is there information that you wished had appeared but didn't appear? No, that's true. Um, we don't have everything uh, that was communicated. It's very clear from the letters that we have that some letters are in fact missing. However, because we have such a massive volume, we can reconstruct from the existing letters the key events in Al-Qaeda's post-9-11 history. What are the key, I suppose, moments or messages that surprised you in, in the collection? You know, it took me a long time to work out which was, which was the most surprising because the letters are brimming with revelations. I guess the biggest story um, of the letters is the gap between what was reported about Al-Qaeda and what actually happened to the group. And I think here, because, because the, the, the papers really change the narrative completely about Al-Qaeda post 9-11, that is not what I expected to find out when I first started working on the papers. I, I expected that I would, you know, that it would enhance our understanding of, of what was happening. I didn't really expect them to change radically the narrative about Al-Qaeda. So Nelly, going back to that point, what is it that was that everyone was getting wrong about Al-Qaeda and bin Laden that these papers clarified for you? Sure. I mean, far from being in command of global jihad, as it was often reported in the media, bin Laden was in hiding. We learn from the letters that in the wake of the US-led invasion of Afghanistan, bin Laden had to disappear out of necessity. This probably occurred sometimes in November 2001. And for nearly three years, he cut off communications with his associates. And Al-Qaeda itself was shattered when the Taliban regime collapsed in December 2001. And we know this because when bin Laden resumed contact with his associates in 2004, they apprised him of Al-Qaeda's grim situation. And we find in the letters they speak of the group's afflictions, aimlessness and their ordeals. And judging by subsequent letters all the way up until 2011, Al-Qaeda did not regain its ability to mount international terrorism. And that is really 
a very different picture from the one that we read about post 9-11 for almost a decade. What prompted you? You said there was a direct connection between the collapse of the Taliban government and the fate of al-Qaeda. How was that so definitive? Well, al-Qaeda did, did not really anticipate that the US would go to war after 9-11. They expected at most a limited airstrike. And the last thing that they expected was a war. And what happened when the Taliban regime collapsed so quickly and the US air campaign, they determined at the time that it was targeting Arab fighters. Mullah Omar at the time decided to ask the Arabs to evacuate Afghanistan. And he issued an order around December 6, I think, calling on all the Arab fighters to evacuate Afghanistan. So here we're talking about not just Arab men, Arab fighters, we're talking about Arab fighters with their wives and uh, sometimes up to four wives, some of these fighters had, as well as their children, and they had nowhere else to go. And so they really faced a very, very bad predicament. So Al-Qaeda's leaders, senior leaders, and their families were either captured in, in Pakistan or detained, uh, also detained in Iran. And, and what Al-Qaeda was left with, you know, except for Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri, who also went into hiding, the remaining leaders of Al-Qaeda were second-tier leaders. It is extraordinary. You, t- you talk not only about um, bin Laden in the book, of course, but also the role that was played by other members of his family, particularly his third wife and his daughters. What have your has your research revealed about the input, the role that they had in the organisation of al-Qaeda? Well, the personal was political in the bin Laden household, and some of the letters paint a vivid portrait of family life in the compound. As you said, bin Laden's third wife, Siham, and their two daughters, Maryam and Sumeya, were heavily involved in drafting bin Laden's public statements. Uh, Maryam and Sumeya particularly were committed to the cause championed by their father, and their, her input was a source of immense pride for the family. One letter remarks that um, their their contributions are broadcast on TV, meaning that they authored the public statements that we heard Bin Laden deliver over the years. There's also a unique document that was recovered. It's a handwritten notebook used to transcribe family conversations during the last two months of Bin Laden's life. It is unique because it allows us to be on a fly on the wall, if you like, in the Bin Laden household. And during those months, the family met every day, sometimes twice a day, to discuss the events of the Arab Spring as they were preparing Bin Laden's public statement because he needed to respond to the events. And on the pages of this family notebook, we could really observe the dynamics um, in, in the household. We can we can virtually hear Bin Laden soliciting the input of his family to his public statement. We can observe the dynamics that he had with his daughters, particularly Sumeya. This is really vividly on display in the notebook. Sumeya comes across as someone 
who did not hesitate to push her father to confront challenging issues. She often provided her own perspectives. And I'm not talking about light issues. For instance, at one point early on in the notebook, she draws her father's attention to the fact that there's hardly any mention of Al-Qaeda in the news. And that's in relation to the Arab Spring. And we find bin Laden defensively responding, you know, well, I heard somebody did. But she goes on to comment also on the style of the public statement, on the content and on, on very challenging issues. Let's talk about the Arab Spring for a moment. Of course, it was the last few months, ultimately, of bin Laden's life uh, when he witnessed what was going on with the Arab Spring, what was going on with the First Nations uh, to uh, support those uprisings. I mean, what was his reaction? Do we know? What were his hopes? He, after all, was a kind of popular uprising that may well have chimed with some of his aspirations. You're right. I mean, initially, bin Laden rejoiced that Arab protesters brought down dictators that he and his organizations had been fighting for decades to defeat. But he was also challenged by the unpredictability of the situation. Also, because the protesters achieved through peaceful protests, what he couldn't achieve through the jihad was also another question mark. At some point, uh, Ismaya, his daughter, artfully points out to her father that in light of what's happening, we need to address, she tells him, the relevance of jihad in your response, because some among the new generation are going to think that political change could occur through peaceful protests rather than jihad. So it was, a, he, it, it was mixed. Um, his reaction was mixed. Can we just talk a little more about the the raid itself and I guess how we all know how that popular narrative has unfolded about what happened to bin Laden and how he was found. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, speculation about how close his hiding place was to this elite Pakistani military academy. I mean, and suggestions that at some level the Pakistani government or at least the Pakistani intelligence services must have been complicit in the hiding of bin Laden. Do the papers reveal anything along those lines? Absolutely not. I mean, bin Laden went to great lengths to hide from the Pakistani authorities. The family was confined to the compound and adopted stringent security measures to evade the authorities. For instance, the children were not allowed to step outside and play in the courtyard without an adult supervising them because they didn't want to draw attention to the fact that Arabs were living in the compound. And um, by the way, nine out of the 16 people who lived in the Bin Laden household were actually children. More tellingly about the security measures that they adopted is that the letters make it clear that they didn't have access, as we said earlier, to the internet so that they wouldn't be intercepted by the authorities. And frankly, if he did have the support of the Pakistani authorities, he uh, we wouldn't be having these papers. Now, bin Laden, of course, was said to have been found because the Americans discovered the identity of his courier. Does that hold up, that, that narrative hold up? Um, in the book, I present an alternative narrative. To be clear, I don't know what went right for the CIA, but I have a pretty good idea of what went wrong for bin Laden. As you said, the official narrative has Abu Ahmad al-Kuwaiti, the courier, according to the CIA, who lives next door in the compound. But that's that's not what the letters reveal. Um, in fact, Abu Ahmad 
uh, al-Kuwaiti and his brother never went back and forth from Abbottabad to North Waziristan. Instead, bin Laden's communications um, with his associates in North Waziristan were part of a highly complex and impenetrable operation that was made up of a closed circle consisting of two intermediaries and a courier in between. Um, bin Laden didn't know, let alone meet his courier. And what's more, the courier himself was clueless about the nature of the items that he was carrying, let alone their intended destination. Now, I have to say that this, these aren't things that are discussed casually in, in the papers. And out of thousands and thousands of papers, of pages, this network of couriers is listed in one of them. Um, so I was, was really fortunate that, that we have this letter recovered. But at some point, the Pakistani intelligence penetrated this clandestine trio. And specifically, they briefly detained one of the two intermediaries. And subsequently, the courier himself was captured. And to go back to the official narrative, um, Abu Ahmad al-Kuwaiti, according to the CIA narrative, he was not part of the closed circle. Instead, he and his brother played a very, very minor role in the delivery and pickup of the letters. So it is, my sense is that it is the detention and capture of the other two that subsequently led to the discovery of of Bin Laden's hideout. I mean, critically, you write that the intelligence community, in fact, was so obsessed by the Al-Qaeda brand, in effect, that there was a kind of a, they suffered a kind of myopia. They failed to see the divisions within the broader jihadi movement and really missed the rise of Islamic State as a result of that. It's true. Um, from a policy perspective, the faulty assessment of al-Qaeda's capabilities was, was really consequential. Uh, regional jihadi groups, including the parent group of the Islamic State, were all judged to be controlled by al-Qaeda, as if al-Qaeda had the ability to orchestrate everything from North Waziristan. And in doing so, the intelligence community overlooked these groups as separate agendas and, and underestimated them as entities in their own right, and, and and ISIS is a case in point. In fact, the letters make it really clear that Al Qaeda was Al Qaeda's leaders were having great difficulties influencing these regional jihadi groups, and often we find them pleading with these regional jihadi groups, including with the parent group of today's ISIS, that please do less and not more terrorism. So, yes, I think Al-Qaeda, you know, the assessment, the intelligence community's assessment of Al-Qaeda's capabilities were, yeah, they were consequential on on their inability to assess the rapid rise of ISIS as a separate entity from Al-Qaeda. Nelly, I've got to ask, why were they pleading with these groups to conduct less terrorism? Is it because they wanted, they saw that as their ultimate role? That's how Al-Qaeda wielded its authority and it didn't want any competition in that regard? No, not at all. Um, Al-Qaeda's main objective, particularly that of bin Laden, was 
to target the United States. And by 2010, we find, uh, we find bin Laden really being exhausted and finding that these regional jihadi groups as indiscriminate attacks against uh, uh, Muslims in the marketplace as well as in, in, their, in their mosques. Uh, he, he came to realize that they had become a liability to jihadis, to jihad, and to al-Qaeda. And he spells it out in his letters that they have become a li- liability. And he says, the Muslim public is repulsed by these attacks. Bin Laden wanted all these groups to be focused on global jihad, meaning against the United States. And he was very concerned that uh, many of these regional jihadi groups were focusing on the local regimes instead of instead of just remain remaining focused against the U.S. Nelly, finally, in in your judgment, um, will these papers do you think change the way that history will remember Osama bin Laden and his actions? Well, we get to know him pretty well through the papers, and and a different picture emerges. He was he was an impressive planner, and the papers. Uh, credit bin Laden and not Khalid Sheikh Mohammed with having come up with the idea of flying planes into buildings. His methodical mind is also on display in the letters where we find him planning other attacks, which fortunately his organization couldn't deliver. But on what matters most, the papers make it clear that bin Laden was a failed terrorist leader who lacked a basic understanding of international relations and did not appreciate the limits of terrorism. That's Nelly Lahoud, a senior fellow in New America's International Security Program, speaking with my colleague Kylie Morris. That was back in May of 2022. Nelly's the author of The Bin Laden Papers, how the Abbottabad raid revealed the truth about Al-Qaeda, its leader and his family, and is published by Yale University Press. And that's it for Between the Lines. Our summer series concludes next week. I hope you can join me then. I'm Tom Switzer. Bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.